Well, Acts chapter 6, we are picking back up in the book of Acts this week. We kind of did a sort of a departure last week uh, on Mother's Day. And last time we were going chronologically here uh, through Acts, we were in Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, we saw the story of Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and a wife, uh, who in the very early church, when the Holy Spirit was moving in a powerful way in the church and people were giving generously and great things were happening and miracles were being done and thousands of people were being saved, people were also being very generous with their possessions and selling things and contributing it to the church so that no, there was no poor among them. And Ananias and Sapphira saw what a guy named Barnabas did in selling some land and giving all of it to the church. And they decided they would go sell some land and give a portion of it to the church, but tell the church that they were giving all of it to the church. So they would look godly like Barnabas, and, um, well, it was the hypocrisy that was the problem, wanting to look godlier than they were, wanting to be something that they weren't, and they kind of were overcome with greed, and we saw the story of how they died right there uh, in, the, in the gathering, right there before Peter uh, as they were being questioned about their sin, and we just saw a picture of how serious God takes sin in his church. Uh, and it's a pretty alarming picture that we saw there a couple of weeks ago. And then as the chapter continues, we see once again persecution ramping up against the church. The apostles get out and they preach the gospel and they're arrested again. And then God miraculously sets them free out of prison. They go preaching the gospel again. And this time they're brought in and threatened and beaten. And they look at those guys, they look at the, the council that have brought them in. And they say, we have to obey God rather than men. And what you see in chapter 5 is a picture of two people at the beginning of the chapter that fear man more than they fear God and don't really fear God as they should. And at the end of the chapter, you get a picture of the apostles who fear God more than they fear man. And so as we leave off there in chapter 5 and we come to chapter 6, the story kind of takes a turn in the early church. In chapter 6, a complaint arises in this early, huge kind of mega church that is going on here. Explosive growth has happened. Thousands of people are a part of the church. And so problems arise. And the problem was, uh, and we looked at this more closely back at the beginning of the year, so we're just going to kind of move past it this morning, but I want to summarize for you the first seven verses there of chapter 6. And what happens there is a complaint arises among the Greek-speaking Jews. They call them the Hellenistic Jews. The Greek-speaking Jewish believers in Christ that were in the church, and they had a great number of them, that they felt like their widows were being neglected. They would take up money to use to, to provide for the poor and the widows to buy food. They called it the daily distribution. And they felt like their widows were being neglected, right? And so there's all kind of things going on here, racial overtones and everything. And so the apostles, they don't just dismiss this. They say, we've got to deal with this. And so they go and they, they have the church select seven godly men uh, to help them because the apostles were over this distribution to help them oversee this and make sure it's done well so that the apostles don't have to choose between getting more detailed in that and maybe giving up, advancing the mission and preaching the word and things of that nature. And so you see the church beginning to delegate and between, begin to organize a little bit more and raise up other leaders and to multiply. And one of those leaders, the first one mentioned in Acts chapter 6 that was selected is a guy named Stephen. And Stephen just stands out in the New Testament as a unique individual. Let me ask you, do you have a Christian that you remember before your conversion? Now you, now, you might have been saved as a small child, and so you might not have this as much. But if you came to Christ later in life or in your teen years or something like that, there might be someone that kind of stands out in your life as a Christian that you just always kind of remember as the Christian you knew before you were a Christian. 
that faithfully bore witness in front of you. It could have been a family member. It could have been a friend at school. But they were living their faith in front of you. Maybe they even shared their faith with you. Maybe you weren't always easy on that person. But generally speaking, we've all got people in our life that we look back on and we remember the Christians that we knew before we were Christians. I've got those people in my life. And you probably have people like that in your life. I believe Stephen, in a lot of ways, was that guy for the Apostle Paul. I believe he was someone that he always remembered as he carried on throughout his Christian life as the guy he knew or was, became acquainted with that crossed over his life before the road to Damascus where the Apostle Paul was converted to faith in Christ. There was just something different about Stephen. And in Stephen, we see an example of what I call an unstoppable Christian. He was literally killed for his faith, but his witness and his impact lived and lives on today. Stephen's witness outlived him. He lived like Jesus, uh, was literally the risen, resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the way he lived his life. That's the way he preached his message. He lived like the gospel is true. He lived like Christ had come out of the tomb. He lived like Christ, his Lord and Savior, was the risen, exalted King of kings and Lord of lords, seated at the right hand of God. That's how he lived. That's how he preached. That's how he went about life. And we see that his witness, his Christian life, was unstoppable in the sense of he outlived his faith outlived him. His impact outlived him. And as we examine this text of the story of Stephen this morning, I want us to learn better how to live that unstoppable Christian life as Stephen did. And the first thing we're going to see this morning, and we're just going to kind of read chunk by chunk as we go through this in different parts of Stephen's story over a couple of chapters this morning. The first thing I want you to see about Stephen is that he exalted Christ in his life and in his message. So look with me in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. That's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership of that day. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So let's pause there for a moment. Stephen exalted Christ in his life and in his message. That's where this unstoppable Christian life begins. You'll notice it describes Stephen here as full of grace and power. It goes on to describe him as speaking with wisdom and the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. That was the characteristics of his life. Grace, power, wisdom, the Holy Spirit. So there was something about the way he spoke to people that was filled with grace, but at the same time, the power of God was on him. There was something about him that was wise, but it wasn't just wisdom of, his, of himself. He was gifted by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He lived a spirit-empowered life that led him to speak with grace, with power, with wisdom, and they didn't really know what to do with him. You know, we live in a day and age 
where people don't really trust one another anymore. People don't trust people in power. People don't trust media. Uh, the, the left doesn't trust the right, and the right doesn't trust the left, and everybody just kind of gets on social media or goes on the news and yells at each other about it, right? And the left demonizes the right, and the right demonizes the left, and, and it's just like this all the time. And, and in a time like that, it can become real easy for Christians to kind of put walls up around themselves and put themselves in whatever subculture within our nation that they feel the most comfortable and say, that's kind of my team and I'm going to go to bat with my team as opposed to being more like Stephen here who speaks with wisdom, who speaks with grace, who has the power of God on his life, who's yielded to the Holy Spirit and is willing to speak the truth in love with grace, with power. We need more Stevens, right? Less hot takes, less retweets and repost and just throwing everything and not thinking about what we say and what we do before we do it. We need more wisdom. There's power in wisdom. We need more of the Holy Spirit being yielded to in our lives as we seek to live out our witness in these trying times. Stephen had that. We know Stephen was servant-hearted because we know from the beginning of the chapter 6 that he was selected as one of the first servants in the church. So he had a servant heart about him. He was a man of the word we're going to see here in a little bit. And he's the first non-apostle that we see in Acts doing miracles. He was unique. And he had God's hand on his life. Now next, we see here in this passage that Stephen lands in trouble. He ends up being disputed with. So imagine a debate scene kind of going on here as he's preaching the gospel. And he is a Greek-speaking Jew. He's one of those Hellenistic Jewish Christians. And so he's preaching the gospel and there are people who are wanting to debate with him and maybe some of those other Greek-speaking Jews who are not Christians. And so kind of a debate goes on. And what we're seeing in the passage is they couldn't handle him because he speaks with wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, in other words, they're losing the debate. And it reminds you a lot of Jesus when he would take on the Sanhedrin, when he would take on the, the ruling council of his day and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And you see those times where they just didn't really know what to do with Jesus. Well... Stephen, full of the Spirit of Christ, they don't really know what to do with him either. And they begin to devise a plan to take him out. But even though this is obviously getting Stephen in trouble and persecution is starting to bubble up in the church, Stephen can't help but to speak of what he's seen and heard. He can't help but to share what he knows to be true about God's Word and God's truth. Because he understood something. He understood that we learn God's truth for the sole, not just the sole purpose, one of the primary purposes is to share it with others. You know, everywhere I've ever worked, I can think about where a computer was involved. We always had a server. And on that server, there was a place for you to save information that really only you and the administrator could access. And then there was a place to save stuff that kind of everybody could go, like the share server, where you could put something there and a coworker could go look at it. And we kind of tend to think of what we do with our Bibles as kind of storing it on our personal server, as opposed to putting it in a place where we expect for it to be shared with others. And when you look at the Bible and you look at guys like Stephen, you look at the early disciples and the apostles, they took in God's word and they learned God's word for the purpose of sharing with others. So when you come in here this morning and we gather together and we're trying to learn together, we're doing it, and Stephen understand, understood this, for the purpose, one of those purposes, other than to grow in our faith, is to share it with others so that the word of God impacts their life. The word of God's meant to be shared. And so Stephen understood this, but the problem is this, they don't like what he's sharing. And that happens sometimes. Even though he's full of grace, right, and power and wisdom and the Holy Spirit, they don't like what's being said. 
And they plot against him and accuse him of some things before this Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was like the Jewish ruling council of their day. It's kind of like, as some have said, like a combination of the Supreme Court and the Senate, right? All kind of coming together as this ruling council to make sure their laws were implemented and things of that nature. And they have two main charges against Stephen. That he said Jesus would destroy the temple and that he said Jesus would change the customs that Moses gave. But what they did is they took some truth about what Stephen had said and they twisted it into a lie. For instance, Stephen most likely did speak about the death of the temple. Stephen did most likely speak about the fulfillment of the law in Christ and seeing law in, it, in its proper place. Stephen did not speak words against the holy place and the law. No, in fact, he understood them in their proper place and function. See, the problem is these people have taken the temple, and they've taken the law, and they've exalted it to a place that doesn't belong. And whereas Stephen sees it in his proper place because he's viewing it through the lens of the Messiah has come and how Christ has fulfilled certain things. And so he sees it one way, they see it another, and so they look at him as trouble causer, blasphemous even. They could not see the substance for the shadows. See, things in the Old Testament that we look at like the temple, the tabernacle, things of that nature, things like uh, the Mosaic law, the, the sacrifices that were made, these were all shadows pointers telling us that there was something there casting that shadow and what was there is Christ, is the Messiah. Now they didn't fully understand all this. And what's happened is they have fallen in love with the shadows. I mean imagine if you didn't really know what a shadow was and you saw it for the first time and you became enamored with it. It'd be kind of silly, right? You just kind of fall in love with the shadow and you protect the shadow and you don't even realize that the shadow is pointing you to there's something else, there's a substance there. And that it sounds silly but that's how the New Testament describes this. When you fall in love with these things like the temple, which was a shadow, which was pointing to a substance, and the substance is Jesus, the Messiah. And that's what's going on here. And as they make their charges, they look at Stephen, and it says they see he has a face of an angel. And it reminds you of Exodus 34 when Moses would go up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. He goes up there, and he would come back glowing, you know, with the glory of God. They had to put a veil over his face so he didn't blind everybody. That's what it's kind of hearkening back to here, this, it seems like to me, this idea that I believe Stephen has a word from God for them, and they don't want to receive it. And he looks at them with complete innocence, with complete the power of the Holy Spirit on his life, with God's blessing on his life, with the face of an angel. And they don't like what they're about to hear. And Stephen goes into his defense. They look at him, they say, do you have anything to say for yourself? Is it true what they're saying that you're speaking against these things? And what we have next is the longest recorded sermon in Acts. So we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to challenge you, if you've never read that, or if you haven't read it in a while, to go read it, because I'm going to kind of summarize it for you here and give you Stephen's outline as he begins to go through it. Because if you just read it and you don't really take your time and go through it, you kind of begin to think that Stephen's lost, he's chasing a rabbit, that he's gotten off course, but he's building a case. And he begins with Abraham's call. And he begins to tell them how God called Abraham all the way out in Mesopotamia, how God found Abraham and started the people. So they knew this. They knew they were Abraham's people, right? They knew that they father Abraham. They, he's not telling them anything they don't know. And then he begins to talk about, he goes from Abraham to obviously he makes the jump to the 12 tribes of Israel, the, 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 the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes to Jacob's sons and he begins to talk about Joseph. That's his next point in his outline and how Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. And he begins to line up Joseph's brothers, the other 11 of the 12 original um, tribes of, 
of the Jewish tribes, and he kind of associates them with the forefathers and the patriarchs and says, they, our forefathers, these patriarchs, they turned on Joseph. And the story is that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and ended up, and ended up in Egypt. But how God used Joseph and how God was with Joseph, Stephen points out. And then from there, he goes to the leadership of Moses and how while they stayed in Egypt, they ended up enslaved to Egypt. And God had to raise up a deliverer to lead them out of Egypt. And that was Moses and how God called Moses and how the people actually rebelled against Moses at times. And how they ended up out in the wilderness and rebelling against Moses and his leadership. And then he brings it to a conclusion when talking about how the righteous one, the Messiah, has come and how they have now murdered the righteous one. And what he's doing in this sermon is, sermon is showing them that throughout their history, God has been faithful no matter where they've been. No matter what part of their world they were in, God had been faithful to them. It didn't matter whether they were in Mesopotamia or Egypt or Jerusalem. God's always been the faithful one. He was with Joseph in Egypt, for instance, right? He had, he had been with them in the tent of witness and allowed them to build the temple. He, he goes all the way through God's faithfulness to them, and he showed them how they and their fathers had continually rebelled against God's leaders over and over again. God's been faithful. You haven't. God's been faithful. We haven't. And he showed them that the temple was not ultimate and how its purpose is actually passed. And that brings us to his big kind of crescendo here in Acts chapter 7. Look with me at chapter 7, verses 44 through 53. <coughs> Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Now there he's, he's now he's referring, he's went from tabernacle to temple. He says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And that's in capital letters. He's referring to the Messiah as the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Strong words here from Stephen. He runs through a history here of Israel, but his point is this. God doesn't dwell in a house made by hands. He brings them all the way up to the temple, which is one of the, the things they were most ticked at him about was the way he spoke about the temple. And he says, God doesn't dwell in a house made by hands. The temple was always a shadow, in other words. You're resisting the Holy Spirit and his teaching on this, just as you always have. You've persecuted and killed God's prophets. You've killed the Messiah now. And you're the people that God gave his law to, his very word. But you, you think I'm disrespecting the law, talking about how some things are about to change? You don't even obey the law. So he his whole defense is he turns it back around on them and says, no, you don't understand the temple. No, you don't understand the, the law. And no, you murdered the Messiah. So his whole defense is he, what's he do? He's put them on trial. He's put them on trial. See, Stephen understood something. He understood who Christ is and what Christ had done and how that had changed everything. Everything was different now. 
So he had Christ in his proper place, and that means everything else had to come in its proper place. If Jesus is preeminent, if Jesus is Messiah, if Jesus is king and Lord and ruler, then he is supreme, and everything else has to be in its place. You know, Jesus himself had been accused of saying he had destroyed the temple. Their accusations of, of Stephen are a lot like those that they made towards Jesus. Now, Jesus meant it, the temple of his body. And he said, in three days, I'm going to build it up again. He didn't mean I was going to rebuild their physical temple. He meant I'm going to raise my body. My body's going to be raised from the dead. And Jesus' death and resurrection eliminated or killed the very need for the temple as they knew it. And some years later, it would be destroyed. And the book of Hebrews is a great book. It's kind of like some would say the, Stephen is the precursor to Hebrews. Hebrews begins to fully explain this, how Christ is the ultimate better temple. It was... The temple was the means by which God met with man. Man met with God. You want to go talk to God, you go to the temple. You want to go hear from God, go to the temple. That's where the sacrifices are made. That's kind of where, that's a, it's a picture of where heaven and earth meet you have in the temple. And they had so sort of deified this temple. It had, began, it had really taken the place of God even in their heart. And they began to manipulate and use and change what the temple was even for. And so Stephen is, in a way, saying, listen, Christ has come, and what Hebrews is going to point to later is he is the better temple. See, heaven and earth meet in Jesus now. God in the flesh has come. The Messiah has come. And the way to get to God now is through Jesus. It's him that you go through. He's the lamb, the ultimate sacrifice that has been sacrificed to take away sin. And so the way we take our sins away is we don't go into a temple and sacrifice an animal. That couldn't really do it anyway. It was foreshadowing. It was pointing to the fact that there would be a lamb that would come that could remove sin. And he has come. His name is Jesus, the Messiah. You killed him just as the Bible prophesied you would. But his death was on your behalf. He died for us so that we could live through him. He's been resurrected from the dead. He's our high priest. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. It's him that makes intercession for you. You don't need a temple. you got something better. You've got Jesus. And that's where all of this is heading in the New Testament when we read this. See, Christians are to live and speak as though they understand that Christ is the true, risen, exalted king, that he is preeminent over everything. And in his context, that had a lot to do with understanding Jesus' supremacy over the temple, the law, and all, the Mosaic law, and all this stuff in the Old Testament, all the shadows that Jesus was ultimate. And when we truly believe who Jesus is and what he's done, shadows will no longer do for us. We can't help but want to exalt him in our life because we know he is the exalted one. And he's better than the temple. And he's better than the things of this world. He's better than the pleasures of this world and the approval of man. And he's better than life itself. And we begin to see Jesus is preeminent. And that has ramifications for us in our culture today as well as it did for Stephen and his. See, the Christian life should be a sign to others that they are going the wrong way that they're on the wrong road. And Stephen was a flashing neon sign to them that you're headed down the wrong path. When I, uh, when I was about 16, I remember I took my, I might have shared this before, I took my sister to school one morning. It was early in the morning. We lived, we had to pull out on a four-lane highway where we lived. And I remember one particular morning as a young driver, I ended up going the wrong way in the four lanes. And I should have caught on pretty quickly, right, because all the signs were facing the wrong way. But I don't think I really realized it until I saw a car headed my way, and we had to turn around real quick. And, you know, I probably had to try to swear to secrecy at that point that I, what I had done. The Christian life, as we live it and as we share the gospel in love, 
should constantly be a pointer to others that they're headed down the wrong path because all of humanity is headed down the wrong path. We're swimming upstream, and we would be headed down the wrong path but for the grace of God. And so it's a pointer to the fact that there is truth to be found, there is life to be found, there is hope to be found, and it's found in Christ. And everything about our life and the fact that we live as though Jesus is who he says he is, he is preeminent. And when we live as though he is preeminent by making him preeminent in our own life, that serves as that pointer for the others. And sometimes that offends people, as it offended these people. Let me ask you, do people see that you see life differently than they do? Is your life countercultural enough that there's actually a rub that people see that you see life differently than they do? With Stephen, that was the case. He exalted Christ in his life and in his, with the message of his life. And secondly, he exalted Christ in his death. Look at chapter 7, verse 54 through verse 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Think about how angry they were. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he, Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's a New Testament way of saying he died. It says fallen, he fell asleep because it's pointing us ahead to resurrection when it says that. Though he is dead, yet he lives. These people are more than a little irritated at this point, right? They're enraged at Stephen. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, how do you respond when people are enraged at you and are angry at you? Stephen responds, full of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to respond. Not full of anger. Not full of, I'm going to get you back. Not full of, I'm going to make this worse. But full of the Holy Spirit, he responds. And he responds and he sees this vision of the glory of God as he gazes into heaven and sees Jesus. Now, where does he see Jesus? He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. That's the position of authority, the position of power. He's saying, the Jesus you killed, I see him with all authority standing in heaven at the right hand of God. He, he is the authoritative son of God. In Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, 69, Jesus himself said, from now on, the son of man. That was Jesus' favorite term for himself. And incidentally, this is the only time, the first and I believe the only time you'll see Jesus referred to that way in the New Testament by someone other than Jesus. It says, Jesus said, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's what he had told them in his crucifixion hours. They're putting him on trial. What's, what's Stephen saying to them? He was right. Look, I can see him right now. He's, he's standing at the right hand of God. Just like he told you he would be right before you killed him. To them, that's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Even they're wrong and they've killed the Messiah or Stephen's a blasphemer. So they choose the blasphemer. What's happening here is Stephen is seeing with his eyes what he had already believed in his heart. That Jesus is the exalted king. And he's saying, Jesus was right and you're wrong. Now where did they go to meet God? They went to the temple to meet God, right? But Stephen says, I see the heavens are open. And I see Jesus. And he's standing at the right hand of God. He eliminated the need for the temple with those words. The heavens are open, and who do I see? 
Jesus, right? I mean, this is the cherry on top of his message, right? For house made with hands, temple, you can have it. There's Jesus, and the heavens are open. There's the way to heaven. It's through Jesus. And in his final moments, he's preaching this message that it is Christ, not the temple, that is the means by which you enter heaven. It is Christ who reigns over heaven and earth and over all nations. Now, why is Christ standing in this picture? Throughout the New Testament, when you see this imagery of Jesus, it's always of the Son of Man. He's, it's all talks about him being seated at the right hand of God. And commentators love to talk about why he might be standing. And we can't fully know. Let me just be honest and say that. Some believe he's standing welcoming Stephen into heaven. Very possible. It could be that he's conveying, Jesus said, if you testify before men about me, I'll testify before the Father about you. So he's standing there in Stephen's defense. But listen to this from Daniel chapter 7. A prophecy of the Son of Man from the Messiah from verses 13 and 14 of Daniel. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an, ever, an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. See, in that picture of the Son of Man, he's presented before God and given dominion over the nations. And see, Jesus as the true king is the judge of the nations. He is the sovereign ruler of all peoples. And as Stephen looked up, as he was being judged by those men, he knew who the true judge was. It was Jesus. His true judge was Christ, and Christ was standing in his defense at his, as his advocate. And Christ was standing in judgment over those that were judging him. See, it wasn't Stephen that was really on trial. It was them, and they were really trying to put Jesus on trial through Stephen. But they were the ones being found guilty. And Stephen was seeing before his death what he accepted by faith until then. He was seeing clearly. See, how you view Jesus is really the most important thing about you. And what Stephen's getting here right before he dies is he's getting to see with his eyes what he had saw by faith in his heart through his Christian life. And there comes a moment where every believer will see with their eyes what we believe by faith now. We might not get to see it moments before death, but you'll see it the moment after. And Stephen gets a picture here right before death. But the power behind Stephen's life was the fact that he lived with that image. He lived by faith like that was true even before he had seen it in the way he sees it here in this passage. How you view Jesus is the most important thing about me. It's the most important thing about me. Want to understand life? Starts with seeing Jesus as the true, risen, exalted king. Want to have peace and strength in your suffering? It starts with seeing Jesus as sovereign over everything as the true ruling king. Want to have peace in death? It starts with seeing Jesus as the true king and judge of all the earth. If you don't see Jesus in his proper place, then your whole life will be a jumbled mess with everything competing for preeminence in your life. It can only be properly ordered when the one who belongs in supremacy is adhered to as who he really is as the king of your life. Listen, when we, when we bow our knee to Jesus, when we bow our heart to Jesus, we're not making him king, we're not making him Lord, we're recognizing what is true. And our life can't be properly ordered until we've done that. And then look at how he prays. Lord, receive my spirit. Prayer for him. That was, that was like a bedtime prayer for children back then. Very interesting. Lord, receive my spirit, Lord Jesus. Lord, do not hold their sin against them. He's praying for his persecutors. Does his death remind you of anyone? Jesus prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That same little bedtime childlike prayer. And Jesus prayed, 
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There is much about Christ that Stephen resembles. False accusations against him, being hated by these particular leaders, the wisdom and power with which he spoke and the way in which he died reminds us of Jesus. Christians should be like Christ. And the power of Christ had been unleashed in his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of Christ is unleashed in his death by the same Holy Spirit. And we see in Stephen's prayer, no malice towards these people, no vindictiveness towards these people. As they stoned him, he loved them enough to pray for their conversion. And he dies trusting Christ and praying for his enemies because, listen, he lived trusting Christ and praying for his enemies. You want to die well, live well. Most conversions are not deathbed. It's been said that we have one in the Bible, to sh- the thief on the cross, to show us that they're possible. And it's also been said that we have one in the Bible to show us that they're not the norm. Usually we die how we live. Stephen lived well. He died well. And what we see in Stephen is not only did he exalt Christ in life and message, not only did he exalt Christ in death, he had a Christ-exalting impact with his life. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We're introduced a few verses before this to Saul. He's standing there as holding the coats, watching over the coats of these men who are stoning Stephen. And now we see that he's giving a hearty approval. The word approval actually means approval to the point of participation. He's all in with this. He's behind it. He's voting yes, right? I'll watch Jack. Some actually believe that he might have been the herald that would have announced what's about to happen to Stephen, what he's guilty of and why they're stoning him. We, we don't know that for sure, but it does seem like he played maybe, as one commentator said, a bigger role in the death of Stephen than as coat rack. And he begins to ravage the church, dragging people to prison, putting people to death. And in chapter 9, this Saul encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And he's radically saved. Jesus himself appears to Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? He's blinded. He goes away for a few days. He's fasting and praying. And he's radically saved. At some point here, he's radically saved by Jesus. And he goes on. We know him as the Apostle Paul. Saul and Paul, same name. One is is the Hebrew version. One's the Greek version. And he begins to go by Paul because his ministry is largely to Gentiles. And the man that wrote much of the New Testament, the most famous Christian to ever live, was one who was giving hearty approval and assisting in the death of the first Christian martyr. And here's all I want to point out. Stephen prayed two prayers. Lord, receive my spirit. And Jesus answered that prayer. He answers it for all believers. And he said, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. And all I know is that for one, Jesus said, yes. Okay. Think about that. Stephen prayed for the conversion of Saul. God, in his sovereignty, saved Saul and radically used him. You know, you have no idea how God may answer your prayers. 
There are prayers that you'll pray in this life that you may not even see answered in this life. Stephen didn't see this one answered in this life, but God answered it. You may have a son, a daughter, a spouse, a family member, a neighbor. You may have a relationship that needs to come to Christ that God might actually save. Or you may have a relationship that you would love to see healing in or a situation you'd love to see God do something in. And you may not see it in this life. You may pray for it, may not see it. But that doesn't mean that God won't answer the prayer. We don't know how God will answer the prayer. And we don't know. He may say yes. He may do what you're asking. But if Christ is king, we should pray big, bold prayers. And know God loves to pray big, answer big, bold prayers. You know, Paul recorded later in Acts 22, 20, a prayer that he had prayed to God. And he says to God, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. I don't think Paul ever got over it. Some believe maybe when he had his eyes closed and he's, on the, he's, he's, he's put away as he's, as he's praying over and, and God's working in his heart and his life and he's probably thinking through the law and the Holy Spirit's beginning to reveal truth to him during his whole conversion experience that, man, imagine what he might have saw as he, as he couldn't see anything. I wonder how many times the death of Stephen replayed in his mind. Many believe that, some believe maybe this is why Paul many times called himself the chief of sinners. Because see, the death of Stephen, which he was involved in, opened up a gateway of persecution that still happens today. Paul did things before his Christian life that we would see as unforgivable. And yet it is God, God has chosen to use him more mightily than any other Christian since the resurrection. The impact Stephen had, we can't fully understand the witness that he bore before Saul of Tarsus that day. So maybe you don't feel like you're making a difference today. I don't know if Stephen felt that way or not. Maybe he did at times. But a life spent believing and sharing that Jesus is who he says he is is never wasted. It bears an unstoppable witness that will outlive you. And the witness you bear to your family and to your children and to your coworkers from generation to generation. So that's why we have to live Christ is the exalted king. That has to be our life and in our message. We have to die that way. And if we're going to die that way, we've got to live that way and trusting that Christ will make an impact with our life. Let me ask you, like Stephen, has your entire life and worldview been rocked to see that Jesus is who he said he is? That he's the son of God that died for your sins and is risen from the dead? Have you, have you repented of your sin and believed the gospel? Is Christ preeminent in your life do you treat Jesus like who he says he is and who he really is? Have you adhered to this reality? If not, I would encourage you today to do what Stephen did at some point in his life and come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And believers, we want to make an impact in our, with our life. We want to die with peace, knowing that we've spent our life well. And we can do that if we live our life like Jesus is who he said he is and Jesus did what he said he did and that Jesus is truly risen and exalted to the right hand of God. If we live that way, we'll never fully understand the impact we'll make in this life. And that's the way God calls us to live, much like our brother Stephen. Let's pray.